Castle. So we return this afternoon, for a third time, to the meditative cultivation of compassion. And this time, I would suggest that we <clears throat> embrace all three dimensions of suffering that have been discussed, that is so far just two of them, and today the third, a little bit, I don't want to go on too long. But the third, very briefly, is a dimension of suffering that is called ubiquitous. It has to do with conditioned existence and is ubiquitous, everywhere present. It saturates all of samsara. And it, it, it points to our essential vulnerability to suffering at all. Why are we even prone to it? Rocks aren't prone to it. Water isn't. Fire isn't prone to suffering. Why are we sentient beings? Why are we so vulnerable? You know, even if we go to some very, very highly refined realm of existence, like in the formless realm, still vulnerable, still vulnerable. And so, this was the Buddha's great insight. Prior to him, so many discoveries had been made, extraordinary discoveries, about the nature of mind, the form realm, dimensions upon dimensions of consciousness, all the way into the formless realm. But addressing this issue, fundamentally, why are we still prone to suffering? Especially, of course, this, this issue really has, takes on the enormity of what the Buddha is addressing, if and only if there is continuity of consciousness beyond death, if and only if consciousness is one of those things just like mass energy and space-time that you simply cannot extinguish. That is, with mass energy, configurations, mass energy, you can do all kinds of things with it. You can incinerate them, turn into all kinds, all kinds of transportation, transmutations. The one thing you can't do with any quantity of mass energy is to make it turn into nothing. That's not possible. Nor can you wave some magic wand over nothing and have it transform into mass energy. You never get mass energy apart from some previous mass energy. And mass energy always just turns into more configurations of mass energy. And likewise, space-time. Now, what we may as well speak 21st century physics. Space-time itself. You can't turn time into nothing. You can't turn space into nothing. Or space-time continuum, as in relativity theory. You can do all kinds of things with it. It warps, it woofs, it can get all kinds of changes that can take place. It's actually a composite phenomenon. Otherwise it wouldn't contract, expand, bend, and all of those kind of things. The one thing you can't do is space-time. You can't make it become nothing. And you don't get it out of nothing. And in the Buddhist view, the Buddha's own view and the view of countless contemplatives who have truly fathomed the nature of consciousness. It's consciousness. It's one more, one more of those utterly crucial core constituents of reality. But my perspective, it's just sheer ludicrous foolishness to think that you can get some compound of chemicals and electricity and go abracadabra and just by getting them complex enough, suddenly images start popping out and consciousness and perceptions and feelings, emotions. That just strikes me as ridiculous. And I know a lot of people have just grown accustomed to that idea, but I think when we kind of grow out of this, emerge from this strange dream that chemicals give rise to emotions, actually emotions emerge from chemicals, then we'll see what an absurd notion that is. Chemicals condition consciousness. Brain conditions consciousness. Brain does not generate consciousness. It's a, no, it's a nutty notion. So sorry. If you disagree, that's fine. I'm just saying my perspective but it's completely nuts. <laughs> what can I say?
And moreover, there's no empirical evidence for it. And there's all kinds of empirical evidence when you actually probe into the nature of consciousness, the substrate consciousness, the substrate, let alone fathoming deeper, you actually see where consciousness emerges from. Dimensions emerging from dimensions. You actually see where emotions and mental images and stuff, you actually observe where they come from. It's an empirical science. You observe it. You know, The other one is sheer speculation and well, no empirical support. Just speculation. Oh, it's crazy. But if the materialists are right, we can really all relax. Because all we have to do is wait until we die and then we achieve the third noble truth. Total, irreversible cessation of suffering and its causes. You don't get to enjoy it, but at least the misery is over. So then we can hang back and eat more ice cream. Really? You know. When I think of the yogis that I've known, like Genlan Rimba, who for a couple of years lived under a rock with a bag of flour and was so happy. There's no way he would have done that if he, is, if, he, if he was not living in a Buddhist world. That would make no sense. He was a young man. He should be, he should be, he should be off having sex. That would make a lot more sense. But within his worldview, this was the most sensible thing. And it brought him such satisfaction. So, let us assume, I shall assume, until proven otherwise, that consciousness is one of those core constituents of the nature of reality altogether. Cannot be terminated. So, exiting from reality, having a, a miserable day, a miserable life, falling into absolute despair and depression, and say, reality? Mm, no thanks. And just trying to exit. Well, it's a nice thought. But it's not an option. You just get another kind of reality. I would frankly be relieved if we could just say no thanks and just check out of reality. That would be a nice option. I am quite persuaded. That's not one of our options. We really have two options. We can continue as sentient beings forever or we can become awakened. There's no, there's no third option. So it's quite simple. Quite simple. So this is all directly pertaining to compassion. Why the Buddha's compassion is so vast and so deep for all sentient beings. Whether they're gods in the highest, most subtle realms, whether they're beings in the hell realms, whether they're kings or paupers, movie stars or laundry, laundry people, laundry people. All equally. So let's map this briefly onto this interface between the three higher trainings and the Eightfold Noble Path. I started it, but I didn't complete it. I find it very, very useful. So a very brief review. Authentic speech, authentic action, authentic livelihood. Those three aspects of the Eightfold Noble Path, they fit into the higher training of ethics. And then authentic mindfulness, not just being mindful, not just remembering, that's just a mental factor everybody's got. But authentic mindfulness that is part of the path that liberates. Authentic mindfulness. Authentic samadhi. Not just being single-pointed like a sniper. But authentic samadhi that's really part of the path. That propels you along the path. And likewise effort. There's nothing virtuous about effort per se. Authentic effort. Often called right effort. Right, right, right. I like authentic a little bit better. Authentic. Yangdapa. Yangdapa. It's just the opposite of zumba. 
Yangdapa means true, authentic, real, and Zumba means false, deceptive, misleading. So those three, authentic mindfulness, authentic samadhi, authentic effort, those all fit into the category of higher training in samadhi. So we covered those earlier, but there are two left. What about the higher training in wisdom? Since we've already covered six out of the Eightfold Noble Path, there's just two left. And one of these is authentic intention, sometimes called right thought. That's, I don't think it's a good translation. Sambayanda, authentic intention. It's not just thinking, it's what you intend. Where's your life directed? Right? I think so often His Holiness has commented that the whole meaning of life, the whole purpose of life, is to find happiness. I mean, it's, I mean, when he speaks of life, he's not just talking about one human life. I mean, he's talking about sentient existence in the universe, right? That's life. And why are we here? Why are we here? What's the whole point? And he said, well, the point's simple. Find happiness. And he's directly expressing the view of the Buddha here. And it's really not optional. I mean, it's so hardwired, to use an awful computer analogy. It's so deeply ingrained. It goes so much to our core of who we are as sentient beings, let alone human beings. But it's not something we can abandon. We can't think, okay, I'm going to stop caring. I'm, I'm, I've had it with samsara. I'm not going to care anymore about suffering or joy. I'm just going to hang out. Not an option. Not an option. And so given that, it's kind of like a prime directive. Prime directive. Then... That sense of caring in Tibetan Tsewa, which His Holiness said years ago in a minor life meeting, he felt to be the most fundamental impulse in a sentient being, or like in a human being. What's root? Is it sex? Is it death wish? Is it survival? Is it procreation? And he said, no, it's caring. It's caring. Even more fundamental than loving kindness and compassion, because it underlies both. Expresses itself as loving kindness. Expresses itself as compassion. Expresses itself as selfishness and as anger, and as craving, and as jealousy, and as benevolence. It's all rooted in caring, and caring sets us in motion. Because we experience pleasure, we experience pain. We want one, we don't want the other, and then we're set in motion. And we're set in motion by intention. That is, of course, sometimes we're pushed and shoved. Sometimes our actions are not voluntary, but often they are. And so insofar as our actions of body, speech, and mind are driven by intention, then in this realm of wisdom, the higher training in wisdom, we can ask what are authentic intentions? What are intentions that are in accordance with reality? And if by our very nature, the purpose of life, the whole meaning of this is to find happiness, genuine happiness, ultimate happiness, the supreme state of well-being, then authentic intentions will be those that lead us to that, and everything else, all other intentions, will lead us elsewhere. So then it's no surprise, is it, that authentic intention is not down there in ethics, could be, but it's not, could be there in samadhi too, but it's not, it's over there in wisdom category. It takes wisdom to see through appearances, to see what seems to make me happy, what seems to make me unhappy and to probe through with penetrating intelligence, with vipassana, 
to see what are the true causes of suffering. What are the true causes of happiness? That takes some insight. That takes wisdom. And out of that wisdom comes authentic intention. That we actually desire, passionately desire, that will, will truly lead to genuine happiness for ourselves and others. And will truly desire to be free of the actual causes of suffering for ourselves and others. That's authentic intention. That's really wise. It's really amazing. And then there's one final one. That is, we have one more branch of the Eightfold Noble Path. And that's right view. Well, let's call it authentic view. I think it strikes us a clearer, clearer note. Authentic view, it's seeing reality as it is. It's perceiving, experiencing reality as it is, not getting it wrong. So right view inside of a dream is having a lucid dream. It's a dream, you know it's a dream. Got that one right? Okay. Now let's work out the details. But if you're in the midst of a dream and you know, and you not only don't, don't know you're dreaming, you think this is external reality, then you're fundamentally wrong. You have an inauthentic view. You're, and view doesn't mean a set of beliefs. It's the way you're actually viewing reality. The way you're actually engaging with reality. Experiencing reality. Beliefs, frankly, are a bit cheap. They can be like inert gases that kind of just sit there. Or like marbles in your pocket. Do you believe that Jupiter has moons? I do. <laughs> it's never influenced any decision I've ever made except for when I want to talk about Jupiter's moons. Yeah. Frankly, really, I don't get much of a buzz out of knowing that the Earth goes around the sun rather than vice versa. I've never made any decision, any major decision. Shall I marry this person? Shall I become a monk? Shall I do this? Well, after all, since the Earth goes around the sun, I think I'm going to do this. That's never come up. So, I'm not saying it's trivial, it's just that it had no real relevance to my life at all. If the sun went around the earth, of course, relatively speaking, it does. But even if it absolutely did, I mean, you still get sunburn. <laughs> Either way, you know, there it is. So, right view, authentic view, is not just a sense of beliefs, it's actually viewing reality as it is. Getting some things right such as viewing things that are impermanent as being impermanent, knowing that all of our human relationships, all of our possessions, our bodies, our thoughts, our emotions, everything, all subject to decay, all in a state of flux. To grasp onto it is like looking at a, a pool of water and say, I want some of that, reaching, plunging your hand in and say, I want a big handful. That's just fine. Holding on to that which is by nature in a constant state of flux, fizzing, 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 and thinking, I'm going to hold on to it, seize it, and I'm going to really capture it. Well, that's an authentic view. You got that one wrong. Grasping on other people, situations, places, things, objects, reputations, and so forth as being true sources of happiness, got that one wrong. That's an authentic view. It's not true. Nothing that we can grasp onto is actually a source of happiness. And for that matter, nothing we can grasp onto in terms of all these appearances, this people, the places, the body, and the so forth and so on, none of those are actual causes of suffering either. Virtually anything can catalyze suffering. This has come up a lot in the talks and teachings that I've given in the past. Is there anything that could happen to you that couldn't, that could happen, that couldn't possibly catalyze suffering for somebody? I've raised this question a lot. I won't really raise it now, but nobody's ever given me one. Not one. Some event taking place happening to you that couldn't cause someone to be unhappy. So, 
I mean, whether that's absolutely and universally true or not, I don't know. I haven't seen an exception yet. But what is obvious is virtually anything can catalyze someone's unhappiness. But that doesn't mean that the world is the source of your unhappiness, that the world is an intrinsic source of misery. Otherwise, no way to ever be liberated. The arhats are still there. The Buddhists are still there. They achieve liberated. The world's still happening. So, authentic view. Not mistaking that which is not a true source of happiness as being a true source of happiness. Not mistaking that is that which is not a true source of suffering as being a true source of suffering. And actually recognizing what are the true sources of suffering and the true sources of happiness. That's a really important right view, authentic view. And then we come to this deepest issue among this great triad, these three marks of existence. Impermanence, dukkha, and then non-self. Is there anything out there, in there, anywhere, that is truly I or mine? I as some discrete, individuated, separate, perhaps even autonomous, self, me. Or is that simply a projection? So grasping onto that which is not by nature I or mine, as being intrinsically, inherently I or mine. Well, that's got it wrong. That's really deeply gotten it wrong. My body, my mind, my feelings... My family, my country, my planet, my galaxy. If there's a direct correlation, these tentacles, like a great big octopus, or like an octopus with many, the tentacles of grasping onto I am, seizing onto anything at all, even the name Alan. If anybody says anything disparaging about the name Alan, oh, make me feel bad, I'm going to punch you. Why are you disparaging my name? You know, so we can grasp onto an, a name, just blah blah. Oh, how dare you! And how dare you insult blah blah? Because I come from the noble heritage of blah blah people, you know. But right there, directly correlated to wherever the tentacles of grasping reach, that now we're suffer- we're vulnerable to suffering. Anybody says anything a little bit dismissive about blah blah, oh, I feel bad. I feel bad. Say something bad about Americans, about Californians, about, about, about earthlings, you know, about men, about Buddhists, about anything that I identify with, anything whatsoever. People who have Croatian wives, oh, those kind of people. Can't stand it when they insult those people. Wherever it is, the tentacles are grasping, right there, we're guaranteed to be vulnerable to suffering. So, there's, this is summed up in one really short phrase, in one of the greatest classics of the Sakya order. I haven't mentioned that one yet. But the Jambajita, the parting from the four desires or cravings, and it's, Zimbajun me. If grasping occurs, there's no view. You got it wrong. You are not viewing reality authentically. Zimbajun me. There it is. So authentic view is seeing things as they are. Recognizing that that which does not exist by its own inherent nature, intrinsic nature, existing from its own side. Viewing that as not existing from its own side, by its own nature, but a rather arising as a dependently related event. That's getting it right. That's authentic. 
rather than grasping onto subjects and objects as all inherently real and separate, intrinsically real. So there's a little summary. This deepest dimension of compassion then is the aspiration may all beings be free from their existential vulnerability to suffering. That we ever have to suffer at all in this lifetime or in any future lifetime. May we be free of that fundamental vulnerability. It was that that caused Gautama to leave even these two extraordinary samadhi teachers with whom he trained and with whom he became extraordinarily accomplished very early after he left his palace, recognizing they hadn't tapped deep enough, they had not gotten to that level of fundamental vulnerability to suffering. And that's what he was after, complete, irreversible freedom. And that's what the Buddhism drama is all about. Anything less than that is just missing the mark. It's not to say one has to believe it. The Buddha didn't say you have to believe what I say. But if one doesn't get that, you don't get Buddha Dharma. I don't care who you are, how famous you are, how smart you are. But that's the Buddha's Dharma. Anybody who denies it is wrong. Just fundamentally wrong. I don't care whether they believe it. That's their choice. But, just, but that's what the Buddha was after. Complete, irreversible freedom from suffering. As he said, what do I teach? I teach the reality of suffering and the reality of freedom of suffering. That's it. And he's talking about something ultimate with the assumption that, of course, consciousness cannot be destroyed, so you'll either be a sentient being forever or you'll be a sentient being for a while and then you'll be awakened. And you'll never be unawakened. That's irreversible. So that's Buddha Dharma. So to arouse that aspiration, that depth of aspiration, that all beings may be free, not only from blatant suffering, suffering of change, but to be free and forever free, irreversibly free, from this fundamental, existential vulnerability to suffering. Deepest form of compassion. And that compassion can arise if and only if it's profoundly imbued with wisdom. This can't just be a belief system, some things that catechism that one has learned in a Buddhist church. It's going to be thin. It can be like, probably like one of those inert gases. This is a way of actually viewing reality. To see it for oneself, in one's own experience, in the Satipatthana, the four applications of mindfulness, the Buddha says, for each of these aspects, the body, the feeling, and so forth, observe this internally. Observe it externally. Observe it internally and externally. And that is probing into our own experience and finding out through our experience, not simply by reliance on authority, to investigate so carefully our own vulnerability to suffering and see how this is related to grasping. Grasping is the absolute core, the link, the explanatory reality for why we are vulnerable to suffering. In the Dzogchen tradition, when addressing the second noble truth, truth of origin, source of suffering, it's summarized in two short phrases. I mean, it's so quintessential. Why do we suffer fundamentally? Because we grasp onto that which is not I or mine as being I or mine. That's the only first part, though. That's only the first half of the equation. First half, because we grasp onto that which is not truly I or mine as being truly I or mine. And 
we fail to recognize who we really are. That second part, that's really Dzogchen. We fail to recognize who we really are. So there's a sequence there. First, learn who you really are not. Open the door, clean out the rubbish, clear the deck, and now you may be poised to break through to the inside into who you really are. So that's compassion. Arousing this yearning for ourselves, that's renunciation or the spirit of emergence. Arousing that motivation for others is compassion, deepest dimension of compassion. Fusing the two, arousing yearning to totally break through to our deepest capacity, manifest our fullest potential in order to lead others to such freedom. That's bodhicitta. That's a little introduction. So let's practice. Let's have one session. Hopefully the Pavlovian response will kick in soon. Hear the bell and relax. Feel your shoulders melting. Your awareness descending into the body. And set your body at ease. In comfort and relaxation. Still and vigilant. And breathe egolessly, relinquishing all control and all effort. Set your mind at ease in the present moment, in stillness and in its innate clarity. As for a little while, you let your awareness illuminate the sensations of the breath and mindfulness of breathing.
now arouse and activate the luminous quality of your awareness. Open the eye of wisdom. As you inspect and review your own experience, and with a question, as you attend to those occasions in which you have suffered in the past, and of course are vulnerable to suffering in the present and the future, can you see a connection between your vulnerability of suffering you experience by way of the body and by way of the mind? Can you see the connection with grasping? This reified latching onto the body and mind as being I or mine really and truly as inherently existent fundamentally absolutely separate from all else as we then likewise reify grasp onto the inherent real nature of the other and of all objects. Can you see a connection between grasping and the suffering that you've experienced and continue to experience? Based upon such insight, arouse from your heart the aspiration, may I be free. Free of the whole spectrum of suffering, from the coarsest to the most subtle, from suffering and the causes of suffering. With each in-breath, arouse the yearning, may I be free, utterly free of all suffering and its causes. With each in-breath, arouse this aspiration. With each in-breath, 
Imagine becoming free. Imagine being free. And set your awareness loose, loose within the field of the mind, not straying off to the five physical sense fields, as if you were settling your mind in its natural state, focusing single-pointedly on the space of the mind and whatever arises therein. Focus your attention on the space of the mind. Rather than simply attending to the appearances, as appearances, whoever comes to mind, any person, any sentient being, whoever invites him or herself into the space of your awareness, 
attend not just to the appearance in your own mind. Attend to that person. As a sentient being. By way of the appearances, attend closely to the sentient being, him or herself. Wishing for freedom from suffering and wishing for happiness, just as you do. And every bit is worthy. And with each in-breath arouse the yearning. May you, like myself, be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Attend closely and linger upon whomever comes to mind. Attend for a while and release and see who comes up next. In a very pragmatic way, the Buddhist phrase, all sentient beings, may all sentient beings be free of suffering. Pragmatically speaking, it's every sentient being whom we encounter. By way of the senses, by way of the mind whoever comes to mind. Attend to them closely. And with each in-breath arouse a yearning, may you be free of blatant suffering and its causes, especially of anger, the suffering of change and its causes, especially craving, and this ubiquitous suffering of conditioned phenomena and its causes, especially delusion. 
arouse the yearning that we may be free of all dimensions of suffering and its causes. Imagine all beings becoming free, completely and irreversibly.
venturing fully forth into the realm of possibility. Imagine all beings being free. And release all appearances, objects, and all aspirations. And utterly rest your awareness in its own nature, holding its own ground, resting in its own place. I like to give the sources of the practices and theories that I share with you. This little caveat at the end of each of these sessions in the afternoon of releasing all appearances. Let your awareness rest, rest in its own nature, knowing itself. I first encountered that in uh, a text by late 19th century, early 20th century Dzogchen master by the name of Dodipchen. 
Marvelous little text that he wrote. It's rather well known among in the Nima tradition, called Dedulankar, transforming felicity and adversity into the spiritual path. It's really a classic. It's fantastic. How to just transform? It's like how, how to be a spiritual alchemist and transform whatever comes up from the most dire tragedy and adversity to the most wonderful felicity and good fortune, and transforming it all like you just have this fantastic digestive power to munch and assimilate and digest whatever comes up and have it all nourish you. It's a brilliant short text. And in his meditations, at least in one of the meditations, after he's given the meditation, then he says, and then now just stop. Just stop and rest in your own nature. Oh, I like that. That's very useful. It's not just a nice little trick. But I think it's suggestive of something very, very deep. And that is through this active transformation, this molding, this shaping of the experience with wisdom, so that it actually does transform into something nourishing. That's the whole point. You're taking felicity onto the path, transforming into the path, so it nourishes you. And likewise, the whole bandwidth of adversity and transforming that onto the path, so it nourishes you. This is an activation. This is really working through reality. It's like, an, like a baker getting his hands in the dough and working the dough. You know, You're working your mind transforming it. And so that process of really working with your mind, reconfiguring it in fresh ways, extricating yourself from old ruts, setting out on an expedition, getting your feet unstuck from where they've been cut. That's what I've been taught as the developmental model. I actually learned that in graduate school. It's amazing. Learn something useful. Developmental model. You know, you're, you're developing your mind towards enlightenment, cultivating it. Very useful. And likewise, the practice we just did for the first 23 minutes. We're bringing things to mind. We're cultivating, we're activating, shaping the mind, directing it, imagining, remembering, using intelligence, and so forth. And what's the point here in this practice? Of course, it's to cultivate that which is not manifestly present. Cultivate a deepening, deepening, broadening, broadening sense of compassion, of aspiration, freedom from, for freedom from suffering for ourselves and others. So that's developmental. Developmental. Very integral to the Buddhist teachings. But it's not 100% of the Buddhist teachings. As is well known in the Dzogchen tradition, the Chan tradition, the Zen tradition, and others to varying extents, there's not only this developmental approach, there's the discovery approach. And that is, although great compassion, Mahakaruna, great compassion, may not be something you experience, not something you know about, something for which you know the taste, it's there. It's there. It's there, hidden in the innermost recesses of your own awareness, deeper dimension, right now unconscious. But then from this perspective, this Mahakaruna, this great compassion, is not so much to be developed as to be discovered. And how do we discover? By not doing. And how do we develop? By doing. So, yin and yang. There needs to be a place for both. So, this was a lot of yang. 23 minutes of doing. One minute not doing. Right? In Dzogchen, you may have one minute of preliminary practice and then 23 minutes of not doing. Non-meditation. So one text by Dujo Mingba, Magom Sangye, 
Magon Sangye. Awakening without meditation. Buddhahood without meditation. Everybody reads that title, they want to buy the book. <laughs> oh, good, I don't need to practice shamatha, vipassana, all that hard stuff. Just tell me how to do it. Not meditating. Yeah. After you've worked for 23 minutes, then you can try not meditating. Right. Or if you're very good at it, you meditate for one minute, and then you don't meditate for 23 minutes. Yin-yang, yang-yin. Very complimentary. This really struck me when I was reading another text, a very big text that I've translated, the Vajra Essence in Tibetan, Neluranju. It's rather early on in the text. It might even be there on the first 30 pages for which I have a commentary in, in print. It may be there. I think it probably is. When he's setting out, setting forth the path, this path of the great perfection, Dzogchen, And when you look at the indispensable ingredients there, that is, what are the components, the elements, the facets of practice you just can't skip if you want to come to the culmination of the path. You can't skip shamatha. You might like to. And you can skip it. You just won't come to the culmination of the path. So, one or the other. Okay, don't skip it. And then Vipassana, that's all about insight. And then there's a breakthrough, breakthrough to pristine awareness. That's Buddha nature, that's Dharmakaya. You're not going to skip that one. And then there's a Tutgil, fully drawing forth the power, the creativity, the compassion, the wisdom of your Buddha nature, so that it manifests, it's on tap. It's on tap. Freely flowing, spontaneously actualized. The Tutgil, those are the four that are indispensable. And a person who's well trained in Mahayana Buddhism, in Vajrayana Buddhism, might say, wait a minute, there's something really important that's missing there. There has to be five things that are indispensable. It can't be just four. There's something really important that's left out. Bodhicitta. Where's Bodhicitta? And so this comes up in this, in this conversation that the primordial Buddha, this visionary conversation that was re- revealed to the mind of Duchom Lingba. And that is, what about cultivating Bodhicitta? Where's that? It does come up later in the text. But here, when he's laying out, here's the path. Bodhicitta in there. Bodhicitta. Cultivating may all sentient beings and all sentient beings being like my mother, exchanging self for other and all of that. So where is it? It's not there. Not in the early phases. It comes up much, much later and rather briefly. But Dujum Lingba's response, the response of primordial Buddha, the speaker, the teacher in this visionary conversation, says, if you realize Rigpa, if you realize pristine awareness, Buddha nature, Dharmakaya, primordial consciousness, that is ultimate bodhicitta. That's ultimate bodhicitta. You've realized ultimate bodhicitta. And if you've realized ultimate bodhicitta, relative bodhicitta arises spontaneously, effortlessly. So to look for it elsewhere, is ridiculous. I don't remember exactly the analogy, but he said, I think it was analogy, something like if you're in the midst of an ocean, thinking you must look somewhere else for water. So, this little caveat, this little, little drop, this little cup at the end, is suggestive of, on the one hand, of course it's very meaningful to cultivate compassion on all levels. We've just been working on immeasurable compassion. 
Great compassion is another order of magnitude beyond that. We haven't gotten there yet. Cultivating, cultivating, very useful. But to the end of the day, so to speak, during the final minute, recognizing, well, there's another way that compassion, immeasurable compassion may arise. And that's just get out of the way. Stop doing all that is veiling it, obscuring it. And let it arise spontaneously. So, we're covering our bets. You know? There we are. So now you know why we do that last minute. Let's see if I can find that one that was lingering from yesterday. I think it's right here. That one looks familiar. Polasso. Do you need to achieve shamatha and vipassana to get rid of all mental afflictions? If so, will only those who take the path of meditation and achieving shamatha and vipassana have genuine happiness? Good. Those are two questions. They're not the same question. They're from Catherine's. I know what you look like. I'm just looking where you are in the room. There you are. Yeah. Thank you. <coughs> so do you need to achieve shamatha and vipassana to get rid of all mental afflictions? You need to achieve the union of shamatha vipassana to get rid of all mental afflictions. And that is, by way of vipassana, you cut through the root of suffering and shamatha, excuse me, vipassana reinforced with and fused with shamatha then gets the job done irreversibly. Vipassana without, mm, sham, vipassana without shamatha gives you glimpses of reality that can't be sustained. There's a really nice metaphor. I didn't make it up. can't remember where I heard it, but it's from the Buddhist tradition. And that is, if you think of suffering as being like a tree of suffering, which then you want to cut down, okay? then planting your feet firmly, you've got a good axe, right? Planting your feet firmly on the ground. It's a big, robust tree. The suffering's been around for a while. Then... Planting your feet, digging in, getting your feet really, so they're really firmly on the ground. That's like ethics. If you don't have that, imagine, if you don't have that, you got nothing. You got, you have no strategy. Imagine that the, the tree grew in the middle of a frozen pond. And you got a great big axe. And you're on ice skates. <laughs> oh, nasty. <laughs> so, no ice skates. Feet firmly planted on the ground. That's ethics. Right? And then the ability to wield the axe with precision so that it strikes the same place again and again and again until timber and the tree falls over. That's samadhi. Striking in the same place with continuity. And the sharpness of the axe blade, that's vipassana. So if you didn't have the ability to strike in the same place, that is, if you had vipassana without shamatha, then you would just make a whole bunch of dents in the tree. Be a little chip here, and a bit of chip there, and a bit of chip there, chip there. But that was, to my mind, at least within a kind of sutrayana level, the more accessible, obvious dimension of the Buddhist teachings, that was the Buddha's greatest contribution to the contemplative heritage of India and eventually to the planet. 
the union of Shamata Vipassana. That wasn't there before him. Shamata was. And there were certainly a lot of insights. But the union of Shamata Vipassana, he, he, that was his contribution. That was extraordinary. So, yeah, that was it. That was it. And then Shamata, how much do you need? How much samadhi do you need? And the Buddha himself said, when, as, he was, as he was narrating what he did after his six years of austerities, and after he got his body, his health back, by accepting some curd and some rice. And then as he reviewed, what do I do now? Because what he, after six years, he'd gotten back to square one. In a way, I mean, he started out really healthy. You know, he's a young prince. And then he got really unhealthy. And then he got some decent food again. So he got healthy. So six years, he just walked around the block. I mean, really, he didn't get anywhere at all, did he? I mean, he explored some nice states of samadhi, but they didn't work. So one can imagine, after all the experimentation he did, because that's really, I think, the best word for it, experimenting with samadhi, austerities, breathing practices, exercises, diet, starving, all kinds of things, ways to try to somehow subdue samsara into submission. You wonder, what now? What haven't I tried? And then you might recall, he reflected back on the time as a youth when he spontaneously realized the first jhana, roughly speaking, a chief shamata, and the qualities of mind that arose spontaneously with that, the incredible stability, the clarity, and so forth. And that question, as he reflected back, here he is, 35 years old, reflecting back to, on, to his experience in the youth, that quality of awareness, that degree of samadhi, might that be the way to enlightenment, awakening, freedom? He posed that question to himself, and then he got an answer coming back. Yes, it is. Really good intuition. So he had to achieve it again. He didn't just carry it with him. He had to achieve it again. It took him a little while. But he achieved the first jhana again. He achieved shamatha again. And then with that, he sat under the Bodhi tree and said, okay, I'm not moving until I'm awakened. And then he applied his shamatha to the empirical investigation, the first-person contemplative investigation, into the nature of consciousness, into past lives of his own, past lives of other sentient beings, the whole mechanics of samsara, cause and effect, karma and its results, the twelve links of defended origination, the Four Noble Truths. Then he woke. But it was awakening through that fusion of shamatha Vipassana. Shamatha by itself, it's just serene, but it's treading water. Vipassana without shamatha, it's not strong enough. It has to be both. But then, if so, will only those who have taken the path of meditation and achieving shamatha vipassana have genuine happiness? Well, of course, the, the definition of, of this all hinges on the definition of genuine happiness. Once again, this term that I'm translating as genuine happiness, it's called non-worldly non-worldly happiness. The Buddha spoke of two types, polycanon, two types of happiness, the worldly and the unworldly, or the transworldly, the like that. And the worldly is the hedonic. It is that which is stimulus-driven. We get it by way of the senses, the intellect, our aesthetic sense, and so forth. It's stimulus-driven. And there's all of that. And it's the kind of pleasure from having enough to eat and clothing, shelter, and all of that business, you know? And there's nothing trivial about that. But then there's genuine happiness arising from ethics, from leading a blameless life, from a non-injurious life, 
avoiding harm, trying to do good in the world when we have the opportunity. There's genuine happiness arising from that. That's real. It's tangible. You can experience it. You probably have already. The experience, the, the, the sense of satisfaction, the sense of joy that you may experience after you've gone out of your way to serve another person with an act of kindness. With no expectation that you'll get something back from it. It's already there, built in. That if there's never any thank you or anything, there's already satisfaction. That's genuine happiness. Then there's another whole dimension, a whole bandwidth of genuine happiness that arises from samadhi. The whole bandwidth of samadhi, the four measurables, first, second, third, fourth jhana, so forth. That's another dimension of genuine happiness. No, no, no. Genuine happiness is not just the highest one. That's why the Buddha spoke of all these three. The genuine happiness that arises from ethics. That's not permanent, but it's genuine. Why genuine? It's authentic. It's reality-based. It's not just being kick-started, stimulated, aroused by some stimulus. It's coming, as I like to phrase it, it's a quality of well-being that arises not from what you get from the world, but what you bring from what you bring to the world. Now we recall, oh, there's these four great aphorisms pertaining to impermanence. But one of them is, whatever you acquire, you'll lose. Whatever you reach out, grasp onto and and get, an iPhone, a person, a body, reputation, money, anything. Anything that top you get, you reach out and you clutch onto, you'll lose it. But if the sense of well-being comes, arises, not because you reached out and grabbed onto something, but from you, what you brought, in other words, hands open, you brought an act of kindness, an act of generosity, patience, whatever it may be, through your behavior, you bring it. Then you didn't get it. You brought. And the happiness is not something you get, it's something that arises from within. So, that's good. And you don't need Chamata for that. Right? But then there's this whole bandwidth of well-being. When the Buddha said, do not fear, that the, the bliss of samadhi is something not to be feared. Now he's talking about that whole second domain of genuine happiness that arises from deep, deep cultivation, purification of my heart and mind, the four measurables, the development of samadhi itself, the achievement of jhana, and so forth. Once again, the joy, the bliss that arises from cultivating loving-kindness empathetic joy, and so forth. The joy that arises just from the cultivation of shamatha, bliss of these substrate consciousness. He didn't get it. He didn't acquire it. It's already there, and you unveiled it. It's something you manifested, not something you acquired. Therefore, it's authentic. It's not permanent. You, you can achieve shamatha and you can lose it. But, nevertheless, it's not that kind. It's not something you get from clutching, grasping onto. And then there's what you're referring to. And that is the third and highest dimension of genuine happiness, unworldly well-being. And that's the wisdom that arises from, excuse me, the well-being, the happiness, the joy, the sukha, that arises from knowing reality as it is, from wisdom. And that's the dimension that they can actually be irreversible. But without the samadhi, it won't be. And the samadhi without ethics won't be. They all fit together. Okay? Good. So, I took care of one. What I'd like to do is alternate back and forth. We have some minutes left. So not get all stuck in the written. And if we may have the microphone, it's going to be Andrea's turn.
Thank you. Um, I, I, I hope it's relevant uh, also to this question. Yeah. Um, yesterday do, you asked us to Hani Zamba and me if there was any part in the literature, for example, in the Bisamaya literature, yeah. talking about uh, the implying, well, the usage of the four concentration, the four formless realm. Yeah. And so, actually, this. Um, is in the fifth chapter of the Abhisamaya Lankara when he talks about the peak training of the path of meditation yeah. uh, where the Bodhisattva having realized directly emptiness Just say that again, I'm not quite yeah. hearing and then, and then the Yeah, If it's, it's uh, pointed right at your mouth, that's good all right. After the sixth Bhumi where the Bodhisattva already realized uh, Obviously, f since the path of seeing yeah. uh, directly emptiness, sure. so what he does is that he enters in what they call the nine serial uh, abiding um, absorption, yeah. and he actually trains to uh, go from the first concentration up to the peak of existence, yeah. and then downward, right. and then uh, alternating this with, right, the, right. with the absorption it's, it's of samadhi gymnastics. Exactly. So, um, I mean, this, it might be, I, I don't know if this was your question, um, a usage of those uh, concentration of formless frame, but even at that point, uh, the Bodhisattva, though he has a long time before realized directly emptiness, he still has to train up That's in, right. the, in the absorption. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Very true. And that is because the, the Bodhisattva, here's the Bodhisattva on the sixth Bhumi, so we've gone way into the realm of possibility here. Uh, for the sixth, sixth level of sixth Bhumi Bodhisattva, of course, it's actuality. For the rest of this, it's very far out there. Um, for the Bodhisattva on that level, of course, the Bodhisattva has to achieve the perfection of Samadhi, the perfection of Dhyana, the fifth perfection. It has to perfect all of them. And you're not going to perfect the fifth perfection unless you achieve all the jhanas, meditative stabilizations, all the absorptions, the samapatis. You have to perfect all of them. That's why it takes three countless eons. It's a lot. right? So it's impossible for on this sutrayana path, with its five paths, the ten bhumis, it's impossible to come to the culmination unless you've perfected every possible virtue. And that, of course, includes the four jhanas and the four samapatis. So... That's why it's said, for example, I really love this, it kind of is, is a bit sobering in terms of just following the straight sutrayana path. From the time when we... It, now, if it takes... This is really deeply into Buddhist soteriology, so I won't linger too long. This is kind of like, okay, up there. But I'll be... But I still... It's, it's not, not a bad idea, even if you're just new into Dharma, to hear some of these more esoteric aspects. You enter the path. You're actually on the Mahayana path. When bodhicitta arises effortlessly, spontaneously, uncontrived, and according to many of the greatest scholars in Tibet, that will not happen unless you've already achieved shamatha. You can experience bodhicitta, but you won't be able to sustain it, and it will not have that spontaneity, that effortless quality. Because your mind is fundament fundamentally still dysfunctional. It doesn't work, because it's still oscillating back and forth between laxity and excitation. It's a cruddy mind. 
So, so to expect unincontrived, spontaneous, effortless bodhicitta to arrive out of a fundamentally dysfunctional mind doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So first get really super sanity, and then consider about super benevolence of bodhicitta, effortless bodhicitta. Once that dimension of bodhicitta has arisen, now you're a bodhisattva. You've just taken the first step onto the Mayana path, namely the small stage of the Mayana path of accumulation. At this point, when we speak of the Bodhisattva path on this Sutrayana taking three countless eons, that's when the stopwatch starts. It's a three countless eon stopwatch. Okay? Before you've achieved shamatha, it's not even started yet. Okay? And so, click, 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 click. All right. We got three countless eons. The first countless eon, just give you a big picture sometimes, yeah? From the time that you become a bodhisattva until you've achieved path of seeing, the first bumi, one countless yam. That's a long time, just put it that way. It's the universe expanding and contracting, expanding and contracting multiple times over many, many billions of years. Okay, so many lifetimes. So one countless yam from the beginning of the Mahayana path of accumulation up to the path of seeing, the first bumi. Now you've gained direct realization, non-conceptual, unmediated realization of emptiness with the total fusion of shamatha vipassana. And you've still got two countless eons to go. So from the first bumi up to the eighth bumi, which is the pure bumi, at which point you are now free, irreversibly free of all mental afflictions, that's one more countless eon. To free yourself irreversibly from all mental afflictions. But of course... An arhat can do that in only nine lifetimes. An arhat, from the time of becoming a stream enter, I think it's nine. Somebody recently said seven, so a good poly scholar would know this. Anybody know offhand? Is it nine or seven? From the time you become stream enter until you will certainly, unavoidably achieve arhatship, it's, I think, no more than nine lifetimes. Even if you just sit back and smoke, smoke cigarettes the whole time, you still get it in nine lifetimes. I mean, you're in the current. It's like you've fallen off a bridge into a very fast-flowing stream and the ocean is only one mile away. Whether you would swim, swim, swim against the current, sideways or down, within nine lifetimes you're going to be in the ocean. You can't help it. That's why it's stream entry. You're, you know, you're in a riptide of liberation. Right? So let's say it's nine. I think that's what I was remembering for a long time. So nine lifetimes, that's, that's, a, that's the time it takes to pick your teeth. You know, compared to the Mahayana. That's a little shot of whiskey. I mean, it's, it's just a little, it's so brief. And you're finished by the time you come to those nine lifetimes, or maybe it's only three or two, depending on whether you're swimming upstream or downstream. You are free totally of all mental afflictions. So why on earth does it take the Arya Bodhisattva one count in the Sion? And after that's after the first count in the Sion. But after having become stream enter, a Mahayana stream enter, achieving path of seeing, why on earth should it take one countless eon when our Ahad does it in, in you know, just a few lifetimes? Well, because you're perfecting all of those, all of those perfections. So many of the perfections in, in the meantime. And you don't, and you don't get to that eighth bumi without that. So, in terms of just the mental afflictions themselves, the eighth level bodhisattva and the arha are on the same level. They are both completely irreversibly free of all mental afflictions. But in terms of the merit, the wisdom, the compassion, the virtues. There's just no comparison. It's like a, like a cup versus the Atlantic Ocean. Huh, makes sense. That gets you the eighth bumi. And then from the eighth bumi to enlightenment, to perfect enlightenment of a Buddha, 
That's one more count we see on. And you consider it, but the person's ability now to manifest multiple forms, the powers of samadhi and compassion, is absolutely inconceivable. How could it take one more countless eon? But just when we thought we're almost there. And he has another one, another countless eon. My God, why is this taking so long? You're, I mean, you're turbocharged. You're like Batman and Superman all combined in one, and the Batmobile off to enlightenment. And it's still taking one countless eon. And that's because these subtle cognitive obscurations, nye avarana, are so subtle to eradicate, to fully unveil, to purify all of the obscurations of Dhammakaya. Takes that. And his only Dalai Lama commented not long ago, there's no, there's no guarantee it will take only three countless eons. It could take seven. So on the Sutrayana path, yeah, no question, one that needs to achieve, and not only achieve, but master with those kind of gymnastics you were talking about, uh, all of the dhyanas and the samapatis in the form realm, the formless realm. On the other hand, all of those can be achieved through the process, for example, in highest yoga tantra, of mastering the state of regeneration and the state of completion. All the benefits, every one of the benefits of the jhanas and the samapatis, form realm, formless realm, all can be achieved without going out of your way within state regeneration and completion to go off and achieve them one by one. You don't need to. For that, and that's why in the Tibetan tradition they don't even talk about, practically speaking, achieving the first jhana, second jhana. They never do it. They're all oriented towards vajrayana. State regeneration, state of completion, you get all of those benefits. But it comes by this extraordinary fusion of wisdom and compassion. And then, if we just want to slip over really quickly into Dzogchen, well, Shamadeva Vipassana, Tekchu Tutgel, the jhanas and samapiti, they're not there. It's not in Shamadeva, the Shamadeva is just access to the first jhana. Not in Vipassana, not in the others. And so where do they come? Where do all those benefits of mastering these extraordinary states of samadhi in the form and formless realm, how do you get them? And it's very clear. You get them from the Tutgel, the direct crossing over. And the direct crossing over, when it speaks of crossing over, it's like you're a, a frog crossing a p- pond. And instead of having to traverse step by step by step, boomy by boomy by boomy by boomy, you directly cross over. You leap over. It's like bounding, like the Dharma kangaroo. Leaping over, leaping over, and leaping over, and then you're in Buddhahood. Without having to traverse step by step by step all of the five paths, all the ten bhumis. So Dujum Lingma says at one point, I think it's still there also, just in that first section. In, it's included in this book, Still in the Mind. I think it's in that, that opening section. It says, seriously consider whether the accounts of achieving enlightenment in three countless eons are to be taken literally or not. He doesn't say they're not. He just says, you might want to give that some thought. And that brings, that just, it hammers your awareness right into the present moment and into this present lifetime. Rather than thinking, oh, but I've got all time, i got literally all the time in the world. You know, the next lifetime, and this time I'm really, I, you know, 
I'd really like to do this, but, but Dzogchen, I'm definitely going to get to it, but, but, but first this, but first this. I said, look, you've got a precious human birth. If you've got a Lama who can teach you Dzogchen, if you have faith in Dzogchen, he says this also in the opening session, if you're drawn to it, you have a qualified Lama, you're drawn to it, don't even ask yourself, oh, but am I qualified? Am I qualified? I'm probably not good enough. Blah, blah, blah. Stop it. If you're drawn to it, go for it. And consider this is it. This life. This is the one opportunity to achieve it all. There we are. Did that that answer the question, Andrea? Is that okay? Okay, good. We have a bit more time. Does the acquired... Oh, now we're back to acquired science. We've just gone galactic. (laughs) Now now we go, oh, yeah. Back in little hobbit town. (laughs) Does the acquired sign arise when one is resting in one's own nature? Or only when one is using an object such as the sensations on the upper lip? It's a very good question. Yeah, the acquired sign, that phrase, acquired sign, doesn't even come up. I've never seen it in any Tibetan literature. It's not to say that it doesn't exist, but I've read a fair amount on shamatha. I've never seen it. It's in the Theravada literature. I don't think the Buddha used the term either. It's in the Theravada commentaries. And it's, and it's not something that some intellectual dreamed up. It's a very good term corresponding to people's experience. That's what does happen. The Buddha didn't, it's so cool the way the Buddha taught. He didn't, as you know, in the, the great metaphors of his walking in the forest with Ananda, forest when there was autumn leaves on the ground, to his, and he's speaking to his attendant, and he picked up one leaf, and he said, Ananda, the teachings that the Tathagata impart or display to others, present to others, they're like one leaf. The range of reality that is evident to a Tathagata's mind are like all the leaves in the forest. So, with that in mind, it's quite wonderful that the Buddha didn't say everything, describe every detail, explain every single point for all future generations, so that all generations would only rely upon all the recorded teachings of him. Because after, after all, he said everything that needed to be said. It would turn us all into fundamentalists if he did that. As if, as if he alone had the truth, and everybody after him doesn't really count. And some fundamentalists think it exactly that. There's a, there's a definite current. Oh, never mind the commentaries. Oh, never mind the commentary. Just what's the original teachings? As if all those generations of arhats, arhats after him were just dummies. All the incredible scholarship. You know, Buddha Gosav, Nagasena, and so forth. And the, in the Mayander tradition, Nagajana, Asanga, Dignaga, Dhammakirti, Chandikirti, Chandideva. As if, oh, they're just a bunch of dummies. We have to go back to the original sources. Well, that's so incredibly arrogant. The Buddha didn't say it all. He allowed his dharma to unfold and unfold and unfold and unfold. So the acquired sign, that's something that unfolded and was articulated in the Theravada tradition. And it comes by way of following the classic practices emphasized in the Pali Canon. So it's following the breath, acquired sign. You may be, you may be attending to an earth emblem an emblem of earth. It's basically a clay pizza. Like a clay pizza. That's what it is, pretty much. Earth emblem. 
You focus on that as a preliminary sign, and then you get an acquired sign of earth that arises to your mind's eye. You may do that on fire, on water, on air. White, yellow, red, blue. You can focus on colors and get an acquired sign. Okay? So the acquired sign is, is a mental image that arises in the course of certain types of shamatha. But, for example, if you are focusing on a Buddha image, generate, deliberately generating a Buddha image, there's no, there's no acquired sign. In settling the mind in this natural state, there's no acquired sign. Awareness of awareness, there's no acquired sign. Stage of generation, you may achieve shamatha by way of stage of generation, there's no acquired sign. Doesn't come up. Doesn't need to come up. It needs to come up if you're focusing initially on something in the sensory field. Because you'll never achieve shamatha if you continue all the way through focusing on something in the sensory field. A visual object, a sound, a tactile sensation, a smell or a taste. You'll never get it. And the simple reason for that is that in order to achieve shamatha, your mind has to ascend from the desire realm and at least touch the threshold of the form realm. But if you're still anchored your attention in the desire realm, then you'll not head off to the threshold of the form realm. And you won't achieve shamatha. To achieve shamatha means your five physical senses implode. But if you're still attending to one of the five physical senses, they won't implode. You've cast your anchor there. How's it going to implode if you've cast your anchor there? So, in those methods for which you attend to some sensory object, like a clay pizza, like tackle sensations of the breath, then that's a preliminary sign. But sooner or later, you have to move on to something that's purely mental. And in those cases, it's called acquired sign. But if you're starting out with something mental, like a Buddha image, there's no acquired sign. Or if you're starting out with settling the mind, there's no acquired sign, awareness of awareness, no acquired sign. Because you've already, you're already there in the mental domain. And so it would be possible then for your five physical senses to implode and then be resting entirely in the mental. So something like that. Dhamma's quite amazing. Good. Enjoy dinner. Fall asleep consciously. Or at least have a good night's sleep. First priority, actually very important, first priority, get a good night's sleep. Don't do anything to impair that. Because sleeping is like eating. You don't get enough. Just like Gautama before he became enlightened. It impairs the health and that's hard. That's hard to practice optimally when your physical health is cruddy. So... Getting enough sleep, very important. Getting enough and the proper kind of food, very important. Getting enough air is important. Those are the three types of nutrition. And on top of that, get some good exercise. So, I think this is the first retreat center in history that's had a $60 million exercise place. That's pretty amazing. Emma Hole. Emma. <laughs> Enjoy your dinner. That's pretty Emma Hole too. <laughs>